reading is from John 1, 35 through 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought to him Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. Whenever I hear this passage, I I get a um, whiff of nostalgia because it was this passage actually... um, uh, what year was, how many years ago was 2014? Four years ago. Uh, four years ago, almost exactly, uh, was the very first preview service for uh, City of Lakes, one half of the Resurrection Minneapolis uh, Ministry Cooperative. And so uh, that, that January, um, in that first preview service, January 26, 2014, this was the passage that I preached on. Um, and some of you actually were there, uh, there that day. Um, and so if you remember what I said, I don't remember what I said. So if you remember what I said, maybe I'm repeating myself, but I don't, I don't think that I am. But, uh, but this passage, this come and see, um, I thought was like a very fitting thing to do when you're, when you're starting something new. But uh, this is not that day. It, it's Epiphany Sunday. And so... Um, we are just past the 12 days of Christmas. Those just ended. And so after Christmas ends uh, is the day of Epiphany, where we celebrate the, the Epiphany or the manifestation or appearance of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so traditionally, you know, this is associated with the visit, visit of the Magi and their gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Um, but this theme of epiphany or manifestation or appearing, it's also one that works really well with just the whole entire gospel of John. Because it's all about the appearance of God in Christ, the word becoming flesh, the light of God shining in the darkness. 
And so in the darkness and cold of winter, this is a welcome reminder that the light of God still shines. And so this morning is really, it's the epiphany of Jesus to his first followers. Some people have some epiphanies in this passage this morning. And, and so we witness really the beginning of the Jesus movement. We might even say this is John's recounting of the birthday of the church, because this is when Jesus goes from this mysterious figure who we're just being introduced to by John the Baptist to, to someone with followers in his own right, disciples in his own right. And these first people who follow him will become the founding apostles of the church, and they'll continue to spread his ministry and message after he ascends into heaven. And so in, in a lot of ways, and not, not in a lot of ways, in every way, we can attribute our presence here in this sanctuary this morning to what happened there in Bethany beyond Judea 2,000 years ago. And so in our study of this passage this morning, though, we're going to focus on, on three things. And on these points, I'm really indebted to uh, a great Bible teacher and commentator who taught at Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington for years and years named Dale Bruner. Um, and, and he sees something in this passage I think is really worth sharing. He sees how Christ uses evangelism to create the church, how he uses family evangelism to build the church, and how he uses friendship evangelism to extend the church. So seeing how Christ creates the church with evangelism, how he builds the church through family evangelism, and how he uses friendship evangelism to extend the church. All right, so first, how Christ uses evangelism to create the church. And the very first verse of our passage this morning, it's the day after John the Baptist gave this report of what he saw, what happened when Jesus was baptized. He said, you know, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he tells these people, I saw the Spirit, you know, come and, and remain on him like a dove. And so um, this is the next day after that. And so he, he, he sees Jesus coming around, and he tells two of his followers, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And these two followers leave John, and they follow Jesus. And just like that, just at that moment, the church is born. And so what can we learn from this encounter about what evangelism is and how it works? And I think the first point, which I don't think I can undersell too much, is that the church should never be afraid of repeating itself. The temptation, right, in this day and age especially, is towards novelty. We're worried that we're going to get bored with what we're saying and what we're doing. And so, so we tend toward novelty for novelty's sake. But here's the truth. What do we have to offer the world? We have good news about the Lamb of God. We should take heart from the fact that John the Baptist begins his first two you know, announcements about Jesus saying the exact same thing. Behold, the Lamb of God. That's the message that the church gets to share over and over and over again. We preach, as Paul would say, Christ crucified. And we do this over and over and over again. And, and that's okay. Because this is good news that never gets old. And that we fear boredom or loss of relevance from our unchanging central message, it, it speaks to our own deficiencies and not the messages. On novelty versus monotony, one of my favorites, G.K. Chesterton, per usual, 
has something really worth listening to. I, I, I absolutely love this. And so in, when he talks about this sort of desire for novelty, he says this. He says, all the towering materialism which dominates the modern mind, and keep in mind he's writing this right around the turn of the, the 20th century. All the towering materialism which dominates the modern mind rests ultimately upon one assumption, a false assumption. It is supposed that if a thing goes on repeating itself, it is probably dead, a piece of clockwork. People feel that if the universe was personal, it would vary. If the sun were alive, it would dance. This is a fallacy even in relation to known fact. For the variation in human affairs is generally brought into them, not by life, but by death, by the dying down or breaking off of their strength or desire. The sun rises every morning. I do not rise every morning. But the variation is not due to my activity, but to my inaction. Now, to put the matter in popular phrase, it might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children when they find some game or joke that they especially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have an abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old. And our Father is younger than we. The church, like John the Baptist, will have to just go on repeating ourselves. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. And as we do that, may we be like children playing our favorite game again and again and again. And not like the lifeless adults that too often we become simply tiring of going through the motions. And it is this message about Christ, the Lamb of God, that causes these two disciples of John to become followers of Jesus. And when Jesus Jesus notices that they're following him, he asks them a question. He says, what are you seeking? There's something wonderful about the fact that the very first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John are a question. And what a question. This is the question. What are you seeking? It's the question worth asking. What are you looking for? What, it is, what is it that you are after in life? What are you pursuing? And this is the question that Jesus asks each and every one of us. But, but evangelism, as the church does it, is also us posing this question to the culture. And as we ask, what are you looking for? For many people, the answer is simply security. We want to be safe in our homes and on our streets. We want enough money to to buy the things we want, to live where we want, to travel the places we want to see. You know, if we could just have that, we're set. We got it made. And there's nothing wrong with security, but it's not an ultimate thing. It's not enough. 
And another common thing that people are after is significance. This is the path of, of careerism or, or professional or educational attainment. So we pursue, you know, degrees that say to the world and to our families or ourselves, you know, we're smart. We want other people to see how great we are. And we want to be respected as professionals or scholars, artists, craftswomen and women. And so we pour hours into our work and we let other things and other relationships slide. And there's nothing wrong with significance. But it's not an ultimate thing. It's not enough. And so evangelism is, yes, this message that we repeat over and over again, but it's also asking good questions. Like, what are you seeking? What do you want out of your life? And so the answer that these two fresh followers of Jesus give to this very penetrating question, you know, what, what is it that you seek? Their answer is, in effect, um, uh, What's your address? Which seems like a very strange answer to give. What seems like a very profound, deep, you know, penetrating, philosophical, life-altering question. What are you looking for? What is it that you seek? Where do you stay? Where do you live? That's a weird thing to, to do, to ask. But there's a lot going on here. And, and their answer isn't so strange as it, as it first seems. So they, they say, where are you staying? But this word for staying, it's the same word as remaining or abiding. And in John's gospel, this word remain, stay, abide. It's a powerful word. Because uh, Jesus is the one who abides with the Father. And those who abide in Jesus, abide in God. And so staying with Jesus, remaining with Jesus, is, is how you have communion, connection with God. And so what are they seeking? Their question reveals that wherever Jesus is, they're saying, we want to be also. We're not just looking for a one-off encounter, you know, some kind of spiritual uh, high or, or quick fix. And asking where Jesus is staying, they're, indicated that, they're indicating that they want to become his students. They want to go to school with Jesus. In a recent parlance in some circles, they want to do life together. Whether you like that phrase or not, uh, that would be a, a, a translation we could do. And so evangelism, it creates the church by sharing the message of Christ crucified and, and bringing people to the places where Jesus stays. And so where, where would Jesus stay? Where is he staying? And the simple answer that I would give is, wherever the word is preached and the sacraments are administered. And beyond that, we could add sort of the, the Matthew 25 marks of the church. That Jesus stays wherever the poor, broken, hurting, marginal, and those crushed under the weight of injustice are. When we're in those places, we are staying with Jesus. So Jesus says, what are you seeking? They say, where are you staying? And then he issues them an invitation. He says, come and see. Come and see. Jesus issues an invitation to come experience life in relationship with him. All right, so that's how Jesus uses evangelism to create his church. And it's a simple message about Jesus repeated over and over again, asking good questions to earnest seekers and an invitation to life with Christ. That's it. No tricks, no gimmicks, just Jesus. But now we're going to see how Jesus uses family evangelism to build his church. 
One of Jesus' first two disciples was Andrew, and Andrew, he doesn't get much play in the Gospels. Uh, Whenever he does, he's always bringing people to Jesus, but he has a much more famous brother named Simon Peter. Maybe you've heard of him. And the first thing that Andrew does after his encounter with Jesus is he finds his brother and he tells him, we found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. And time and again, we see this play out in the real world, that when the Christian message spreads and the church grows, it's through families and and households. And it makes sense. Because the people with whom we spend the most time and and know best are our families. And, And the most important thing about families is that we have the most access to our families. Basically, our families are the people who are, we can impose ourselves upon the most, even more than our, our friends. You know, after church today, I could call up my Uncle Bob and, and Aunt Jan, and I could ask them to babysit my kids. Even tonight, I could ask them, and I wouldn't feel bad about it. Even if they said no, I wouldn't feel bad about it, even though I haven't spoken to them in months, because they're family, and I can just do that. And they could call me today and ask me for a ride to the airport. And I might not give them a ride to the airport, but they could call and ask me and I wouldn't be mad at them because they're family. And I know, as I say this, that each and every family is a foreign country. Uh, And so you enter it at your own risk without understanding its customs and its norms and its folkways. And family evangelism, if done very poorly, can be horribly overbearing. Maybe you've been a victim of that in your own life. If you have, I'm sorry. We'll try to do it better. But what we see with Andrew and Peter is that family evangelism, done right, is not overbearing. Andrew says, here's who we found, and he brings him to his brother, and Jesus takes care of the rest. And if I were to translate this into the 21st century, it sounds so simple, but I'll just do it anyways. You could invite your family to church. Or any church with with Christ-centered preaching. And then you don't have to sweat it. You let Jesus do the rest. Changing hearts is his job, not ours. Uh, We spoke last week in the sermon that it's very important for us to understand who we are and who we are not. And so when I think of a real-life, very simple example of family evangelism, I take our own D. and Drew Lucas. And I think back to that first preview service almost four years ago. And and they were really the first people who came in who I had no idea who they were. They didn't have any connection to any other person who were in Armitage Elementary School's auditorium that Sunday. And I was so excited, but kind of terrified to see them there, right? Because you're like, well, what are we going to do with these people now that, that, that they came here? I don't know what to say. And, and the reason that Dee and Drew came, they were not, were you engaged yet even? You had just gotten engaged. Oh, just popped the question. Yes, yes. So you had, just, you had just gotten engaged, and they came to the first preview service. And the reason that they came to that I mean, they live in St. Paul, and this is over in Minneapolis, and it's a random elementary school. It was, the weather was horrible. If you remember the polar vortex, this was like one of the most polar vortexy of polar vortex days. I literally got frostbite on my fingers hanging the sign outside of the school that day. It was, it was brutal. Winds, 40 miles an hour. But they came to a random elementary school auditorium at 5.05 p.m. on a Sunday evening. To, to, to attend a new church in Minneapolis because her mom's pastor at Alexandria Covenant Church 
had told the congregation, hey, there's this new thing starting in Minneapolis. And so her mom said them that they should come, told them they should come and see this new thing. And they've been with us ever since. The rest is history. That's a beautiful example to me uh, of family evangelism in action. Two people I wouldn't know, two amazing, two of my favorite people that I wouldn't know if that hadn't happened, if your mom hadn't have said, come, come and see. And the wonderful thing is that when, when Simon encounters Jesus, Jesus, Jesus sees something in Simon that Simon didn't see in himself. And the same thing happens to us. It happens to people in our family. We bring them to Jesus. Things are going to get called up and, and built up in them that we didn't know and see in them before. And so Jesus says to Simon, I'm going to rename you the rock, because he saw in this Simon a rock, a leader on whom he would build his church. Even though for most of the story, as we see, this guy who Jesus calls Rocky is going to be more like Sandy. He's not going to be a very solid person. But Jesus sees Simon not just for who he is right at this moment, but for who he will be. And Jesus sees more in us than we see in ourselves or in our family members. And thanks be to God for that. Okay, so that's, Jesus uses evangelism to create his church. He, he uses family evangelism to build the church. And the last thing is to look at is how Jesus uses friendship evangelism to extend his church. And so the day after renaming Simon uh, Peter Cephas, Jesus decides to head up to Galilee. And so he's in the hometown of Peter and Andrew, and he finds Philip and says, follow me. Philip obliges, and the first thing that Philip does is find his friend Nathaniel, and he tells him, we have found the Messiah. And notice he does not say, I have found. He says, we have found. And from this, we can assume that Nathaniel, he was friends with Peter and Andrew. And the truth is that the gospel is much more compelling as a we have found rather than an I have found. And wherever Jesus goes, he takes eyes and makes we's. He brings us out of our isolation and alienation and into community. In his introduction to Jesus, Philip includes some biographical details. That Jesus' dad is Joseph. He's from a town called Nazareth. And later we learn that Nathaniel is from this town called Cana, a town that was on the way from Bethesda, which is right on the Sea of Galilee. And you go up in, into the hills, and eventually you'll get to Nazareth. But in a midpoint kind of way is Cana of Galilee. And to a person from Cana saying that Jesus was from Nazareth, it's like saying to someone from Minneapolis that a person is from St. Paul. Can anything good come from there besides 94 West? To all my St. Paul people in here, I love it. That's just a joke. A lot of respect. We got some of you in the room. So my East Side people, I love you. Can anything good come from there? And Nathaniel, he was also clearly a student of the Bible. Because after all, Philip says, we found the one who Moses and the prophets wrote about. And because Nathaniel knew his Bible, he knew that it didn't say anything about the Messiah coming from Nazareth. The town of Nazareth does not even make an appearance in the Old Testament. But little does Philip know that Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And so when we know those things, it's, it's easy to understand Nathaniel's healthy skepticism. In fact, Healthy skepticism is a good place to start for faith. As the great uh, missionary scholar Leslie Newbegin says of Nathaniel, he says, Intelligent skepticism isn't condemned, for it is the necessary balance which preserves the distinction between, between genuine faith and foolish credulity. 
When it comes to becoming a follower of Jesus, we can be encouraged by the fact that intelligent skepticism, and there are all kinds of unintelligent forms of skepticism, but intelligent skepticism is a legitimate starting point. It's a starting point for an invitation to come and see Jesus. There's that invitation again, the same one that Jesus gave to his first followers. And so the invitation to come and see is the most potent evangelistic tool that we have. Because the truth is that not very many people have been argued into the Christian faith. You can be argued out of being a full-blooded skeptic, but that's not the same thing as being argued into being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Even the most, you know, sort of rationally-minded, apologetically-inclined Christian converts that I know did not become Christian solely because someone presented them with a list of good arguments to which they assented. They became Christians because they came and they saw and they encountered a Jesus who surprised them. Just as he surprised Nathaniel with the fact that he'd seen him before seeing him. And upon hearing that Nathaniel the skeptic, he becomes Nathaniel the believer. And, and then Jesus says to him, well, you're going to see greater things than these. You ain't seen nothing yet. And Jesus continues, he says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, or as the KJV is so much better on this point, verily, verily, I say unto you. And this double amen, you know, truly, truly, verily, verily, it's amen, amen. It's Jesus' characteristic way of speaking. And the you here is plural, so he's not just talking to Nathaniel anymore, he's, he's talking to all of us. He says, you, plural, y'all, for the southerners out there, will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay. Uh, no one ever sees this in John. So what does Jesus mean? And what he's referring to at this moment is this scene from Genesis. Where Jacob, you know, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's the one who steals the birthright from his brother Esau. And that gets him in trouble. And so he's on the run. And basically he's desperate. His life is going nowhere. And he's a conniving person. And he's in this desperate place, but then he has this dream. And in this dream, he sees a ladder up to heaven, and he sees angels ascending and descending on it. And he wakes up, and he, and, he, and, he, and he builds this altar, and he names this place Bethel, which means the house of God, because he had found the, the meeting place, the thin space between heaven and earth. And so what Jesus is saying then in this encounter is that he himself is Jacob's ladder. He is the thin space between heaven and earth. He himself is the link between heaven and earth. He is, is heaven coming down to us to bring us back up with him. He goes low so that we can go high. Right? That's, that's, that's the gospel. He went low to bring us high. And I'm going to close with this very short quote from Dale Bruner. It's his summary of the passage, and I think it's just spot on. I am convinced, he says, in preliminary summary that John is trying to teach the future church how to do her evangelistic work and that this lesson comes down essentially to two main points. Have a Christocentric, Christ-centered preacher and B, find and invite friends and family to come to church and check out the matter for its reality. So keep Christ at the center of your preaching. Find and invite your families and friends to check out this matter for themselves. Amen, amen. Let that be so with us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, 
and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.